0: We have in 2 Kings chapter 3 a tale of four kings. A tale of four kings. It might be helpful, uh, Thomas, if you just pull up the, the next slide, just to remind you of the situation. Elisha is ministering in the northern kingdom of Israel after the original nation has split into two. They use the city of Samaria as their capital city. In the south, The tribes of Judah and Benjamin, referred to in the scriptures as Judah, uh, also have their own succession of kings taking place. So in this story, we've got King Jehoram in Israel, and he speaks to Jehoshaphat, who's the king in Judah. And they decide together that they're going to go through to Moab, which as you can see, that's the Dead Sea at the bottom of the River Jordan. Right in the middle there, the blue. Moab's on the far side. Remember from our story of Ruth. That's where Ruth, uh, Naomi and Elimelech went to. And that's where Ruth came from with Naomi as they returned to Bethlehem. And they've decided that they're going to travel down south through Judah into Edom, round the bottom of the Dead Sea, and then up into Moab. And it's as they're going through the wilderness of Edom at the bottom there that they run out of water. Now, Jehoram is the king of Israel, a descendant of wicked king Ahab. Um, These Old Testament history books can sometimes be a little bit confusing. You have to keep your wits about you. For one thing, on a few occasions, Jehoram is sometimes referred to as Joram, but mostly Jehoram. And down in Judah... They also had a king whose name was Jehoram. He would come after Jehoshaphat. So you do have to keep your wits about you as you're reading through these books so that you don't get your kings confused and you remember whether you're in Israel or whether you're in Judah. But we're dealing with King Jehoram in Israel who takes up uh, an alliance with King Jehoshaphat of Judah and with the king of Moab. And uh, the king of Edom, sorry. Uh, the three, those three kings. And the king in Moab, Misha, uh, he has been what is known as a vassal to King Ahab. When Ahab was ruling over Israel, um Moab decided that they needed to keep in Israel's good books. They needed to do everything they could to make sure that Israel didn't come and attack them. And so once a year, King Mesha sent these payments by means of sheep and wool through to Ahab. And that appeased Ahab and kept the Moabites in Israel's good books And so the term that is used when that happens, because basically King Misha is sucking up to Ahab so that he doesn't turn on him. Uh, So he's a vassal is the term that's used to King Ahab. But once he realises that Ahab has died, Misha decides he's going to chance his arm and break this agreement. He wasn't prepared to do that with Ahab, especially when Jezebel was alongside him. But now that they've gone, maybe now is the time... For Moab to break out of that agreement that's been running. And that's what the king of Moab, Misha, decides he's going to do. And Jehoram in Israel hears about this. And so he decides this is just going to be the start of trouble. I'm going to get my retaliation in first. And let's go and sort this guy out. And so Jehoram... Pals up with Jehoshaphat, who also knows the king in Edom. Perhaps the king in Edom is a vassal to Judah. The three of them decide they can take on Moab together. And they travel down under the Dead Sea. If you've ever visited that part of the world, it's very hot. It's very dry. And their vast numbers of men and animals are soon running out of water. And you can't go and get water from the Dead Sea to drink. It's not called the Dead Sea for nothing. It's not drinkable. And it's at this point that Elisha gets woven into the story. In the provision of water. We'll come on to that shortly. And then, just so that you've understood the story, the the water arrives miraculously from Edom. We don't know where it came from or how it got there. But we know God is in this and so it is his doing. The water arrives. The Moabites have heard what's going on. They've come to counterattack. And early one morning they look across and as the red sun of dawn rises over the water, the water looks like blood. And they conclude that civil war has broken out in the camp amongst these three kings and their armies. And they've all killed each other. Great! Let's just go and get the spoils. And so off they go and they've taken their guard down. They think they're just walking through the camp to pick up whatever loot they can find. And so they get a rather nasty surprise when they discover that no such thing has happened. And all the armies are there. Very much in one piece. And as soon as they hear the Moabites arriving, up they get. And battle ensues and the Moabites are completely overrun. There's a last gasp offensive recorded in verse 26 as uh, Misha gathers, perhaps, well, is this his, his version of the SAS, his elite force, maybe so, 700 men. One final uh, effort to break through the ranks, but that doesn't, that doesn't work. Uh, Completely overrun. And then, right at the end of the chapter, this barbaric example of just how wicked and desperate pagan religion can be as King Misha burns his own son to try and persuade his false gods to help him and give him victory. And such sacrifices often meant burning them alive. What can we learn? from a chapter such as this. Well, four things. Number one, partial righteousness is no righteousness. We read about Jehoram that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's a thing that's commonly said, sadly, about the kings of Israel and Judah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother. He wasn't as bad as Ahab and Jezebel. He wasn't as wicked as he could have been. Nevertheless, verse 3, he persisted in many sins. Jehoram was better than Ahab. He destroyed the pillar of Baal, but he didn't go nearly far enough in spiritual reforms and actually continued in the other pagan idolatrous worship that was taking place in Israel. Dale Ralph Davis records this in his commentary. He wasn't as wicked as he could have been, but he wasn't as righteous as he should have been. Partial righteousness is no righteousness. Now, many people today, uh, perhaps you're here, many today are convinced that by not being as bad as you could be is all that matters to God. Well, I'm not as bad as I could be. Okay, I'm no angel, but look at, I'm not as bad as them. Jehoram could have said that about Ahab, his father, and Jezebel. But look at God's perspective on him in verse 2. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. There is a sense in which you could have said that compared to Ahab, there is a little bit of righteousness in Jehoram, But partial righteousness is no righteousness. When it comes to being acceptable to God. There isn't a long sliding scale. It's a clearly defined separation between wickedness and righteousness. And the Bible says that in our natural state there is no one righteous. We all fall in the camp of wicked. Now, it's true that in the camp of wickedness, there are degrees of wickedness. Jehoram was not as evil as his father. But that doesn't put him into this camp over here. He's still in the camp of wickedness. There is no righteousness in him. Being not as wicked as him only makes you a little bit less wicked. It does not make you righteous. And righteousness is the only thing that's acceptable to a holy God. Turn away from a great evil like Jehoram did. Well, that is a good thing. But that does not make it okay to continue in a lesser evil. It's still evil. And it's still wickedness. And the fact that you, have, you may have turned aside from a great evil. If you continue in lesser evils. What you've done over here does not mean that God can just wink and turn a blind eye. And so all of us you see need that salvation which Christ came to bring. Because any partial righteousness that we may try to claim for ourselves is not righteousness in God's eyes. We're still wicked. We need a perfect righteousness. That's one of the great lessons that we can learn from some of these Old Testament figures you see. We need a perfect righteousness. How can we get that? Where do we go for that? Only Christ. That's why Christ would come. One of the things that these Old Testament characters do is show just how desperately we need the promised Messiah. They show us just how desperately we need this Christ. If you're trying to get by on a partial righteousness... In the eyes of God, it is no righteousness at all. Second lesson is about having God in his rightful place. And this is in verses 4 through to 14. As the story is unfolding, Jehoram found himself with two allies. He's got Jehoshaphat, he's got the king of Edom. He's in this hot, dry wilderness and running out of water. (coughs) And Jehoram just blames God for their predicament. Verse 10 this is Jehoram speaking. Alas! Oh, poor me! Poor us! The Lord has called us, these three kings, together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. God's brought us here, and He's just going to do it so that we can die. And it's all God's fault. It's all God's doing. And He blames God for their predicament. How typical! There's been no mention of God from the lips of Jehoram. But as soon as things start to go wrong, it's all God's fault. There's been no turning to God in prayer. There's been no seeking after God for help. There's been no asking of God for wisdom. There's no recognition of the sins of Israel in Jehoram. There's no repentance for the sins of Israel in Jehoram. There's no enquiring after God as to what his will might be. No confession of their great need of God's help. In all of these kinds of things, Jehoram has remained silent. No sense of trying to act in such a way as to glorify God. But now it's going wrong. Suddenly God is remembered and he's to blame. It isn't even Jehoram who thinks to turn to Elisha in verse 11. It's one of his servants. And then look at what Elisha says to Jehoram in verses 13 and 14. What have I to do with you? What are you coming to me for? Go to the prophets of your father. You've still got all those idols set up back home in Israel. You haven't taken, okay, you've dealt with one, the pillar of Baal. All the others are still there. Go back and ask them for help. You've still got them there. They're the ones you worship. They're the ones you're spending time with. Go and ask them. What are you asking me for? Go back to Israel. Ask your gods. Where are they? You're not blaming them. Why not? Go back. Tough language from Elisha. Well, Jehoram only wants a God who can act like a genie in a lamp. Come out of your lamp, God. Help me to get out of this predicament because you're supposed to be kind and good. But once you've done it, get back in your lamp and stay out of my way and let me get on with my life. Ever heard people talk about God like that? I have. When the going's good, not a peep. When the going gets tough, where's God? He should be here to help me. But we know full well if he did, he'd soon be forgotten again. This is how countless numbers of people think of God and want to approach God. Worship him, love him, serve him, follow him, submit to him, never. But I'll blame him when things go wrong. And I expect him to help me out when they do. Are there any Jehorams here this evening? While you remain like that in your heart, God has nothing to say to you. Listen to a couple of verses from the Bible. Listen to Psalm 51. This is that very well-known psalm. These are the words of King David. Listen to what he says in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. But a cold, stubborn heart like Jehoram's doesn't cut any ice with God. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. Listen to God's prophet. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him I hid and was angry he went on back sliding in the way of his heart you see God looks at our heart and Elisha knew what Jehoram's heart was like Jehoram God has nothing to say to you wow And the only reason Jehoram is going to be given any consideration is because of Jehoshaphat. That's what it says. It's because of Jehoshaphat here. I'm actually going to consider you, says Elisha, and remember you. Do you recall how in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter seven, the Apostle Paul? Speaks of those who are sanctified in the presence of believers. Those who are unbelievers but they are sanctified in the home of a believer. I think that's something of the principle that's taking place here in this chapter. That here in Jehoshua is a man who immediately knew the right thing to do. The only thing to do was inquire of the Lord. And that was his immediate advice to Jehoram. And on account of him, says Elijah, because he knew what to do, he knew the right course of action to take. On account of him, Jehoram, you are going to benefit from the right thing that Jehoshaphat has done. And isn't that a mark of God's grace towards Jehoram as well? And God is gracious towards Jehoshaphat. And because Jehoram is with Jehoshaphat, he enjoys God's grace too. And that shows something of God's gracious nature. He doesn't withhold grace from Jehoshaphat because he's with Jehoram. God doesn't say to Jehoshaphat, what are you doing with him? He offers grace. Now that kind of spiteful malice is often found in the hearts of men and women. But it's not found in God. And he deals with these men with grace. And he answers them. And he leans in grace towards Jehoshaphat and Jehoram. And even the king of Edom, are going to benefit from that. God is kind and God is gracious. But he's not a fool. And if Jehoram had been on his own, it might have been a very different story. And one more thing. All of you who are Christians here this evening, you've been the recipients of such wonderful Grace. And of course, it wasn't because you deserved it. All of you had hearts and minds just like Jehoram's. I had a heart and a mind just like Jehoram's. So, why was God gracious to you? Why was God gracious to me? On account of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. For His sake, you have come to know God's kindness. For Christ's sake, you have come to know His goodness. For Christ's sake, you have come to know his forgiveness. He came to you that you might know him. And in Christ, you receive the smile of your heavenly father. Such is God's grace. And thirdly, it is abundant grace. Look at verse 18. Need, the need of water. This is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord, says Elisha. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Well, they hadn't asked for that. To supply you miraculously with all the water you need, that's a trivial thing for God. That's a small thing for God. He's going to give you the Moabites as well. And we see how God so orchestrates events. Even while the armies of Israel and Judah are sleeping, the Moabites come in. They see the water. They think it's blood. They think havoc has been wreaked in the camp of these men. And in they go, thinking they're just going to walk right through. And they're caught completely off guard and they're defeated. A God of great abundance. I couldn't help but think of Ephesians 3 verse 20. That God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And here he is doing that for these three kings. Such is his grace. And such is his kindness. And such is his goodness. And if God will do that for the likes of Jehoram. Can we not be certain that God will also do it for us his people? Is this not the same unchanging God who is our God today? Do you not believe that this is your God who will deal with you in abundant grace and in abundant kindness just as he does even with a man like Jehoram? And then in conclusion, I just want to point out one thing. Fourth point, the reality of the alternative. The reality of the alternative Here is God acting with such grace and kindness towards them. But what's the alternative? Well, it's starkly brought to our attention in the final two verses of this chapter. When men and women leave the true and living God out of their lives, the alternatives that they turn to are a slippery spiral to depravity, to desperation and to destruction. If it's in the form of religion, it can degenerate to the point where kings in the 8th century BC are prepared to burn their children to try and appease their idols that they might work on their behalf. And in the 21st century AD, they're prepared to make themselves into suicide bombers and take the lives of innocent people. In the name of religion. Such are the alternatives. If you turn away from the true and living God. Who is full of grace and mercy and kindness. Here's the alternative. In verse 27. Here's how desperate King Misha has become. So desperate that he thinks he has no alternative than to take his eldest son, the heir to his throne, and burn him. Such is the emptiness. Such is the desperation of false religion. False religion has nothing to offer. And how its emptiness stands in stark contrast to the grace that those three kings have found in the God of Israel. Just look at the difference Such abundant grace on the one hand and a man so desperate to try and make his God's work for him prepared to burn his son. Israel was so repulsed by what they saw such indignation came upon them that they wanted no further part in it. And they stopped their attack and they withdrew. It shocked them. But even if it's not false religion. So many people end up selling their souls to all the devil's lies. And they find their lives shattered in pieces. Because they are prepared to pursue anything and everything but God. And only in God is there found grace and mercy and kindness. Unsaved men and women, you know, they think that we are the ones under a great burden. When we come to God, when we submit to him, when we open his word and we read it and we believe it and say, I'm, I'm going to give my life to this truth. I'm going to live by this. They think... That we are putting ourselves under a great, great burden. Just pause and take a look at King Misha on the city walls. Sacrificing his son in the vain hope of appeasing his God. We're not the ones who are burdened by sin, are we? We're the ones who are set free from the ravages of sin were the ones set at liberty in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well did Jesus say that when the weak and heavy laden come to him, they will find not tyranny like the gods of King Misha, but rest for their soul. Rest for your soul. I suspect King Misha from that day forward never found rest for his soul. But you can in Christ. Some of you have in Christ. Yes, you must take Christ's yoke upon your shoulders. Yes, you must become his servant. But you will discover that he is gentle and lowly of heart. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Amen.